Republicans in the legislature, their political action committees um, are under investigation. And so they want to make all the activity that they're under investigation for completely legal. We organized and got strong because we had a particularly bad boss that pushed us to build more militancy, to be able to build the power to strike back. It's not that there aren't shows and movies that are focused on working class issues. But a lot of our nominees this year are very much focused on the upper class. Everybody loved Mr. Donald. But then when the second New Deal comes along, and it's actually about empowering workers, and it's actually about providing unionization rights and collective bargaining and stuff that doesn't necessarily empower him, but empower his workers to say what they want, rather than him telling them what he wants. Can music change the world? Several years ago, I asked the late, great Pete Seeger that question. I don't know about that, said Pete, but the powers that be certainly think so. They have repressed song for centuries. And indeed, sisters and brothers, there is power in song. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, Extremism in Topeka with the Kansas reflector Sherman Smith on the Heartland Labor Forum. From the dig, two union organizers discuss Rutgers workers' industrial unionism strategy. Then, the Oscars are this Sunday. Actor and podcaster Harold Phillips highlights some of the more labor-focused movies and TV shows on Labor Goes to the Movies. After a two-year hiatus, we're very pleased to welcome back the Working History Podcast, which spotlights the work of leading labor historians, activists, and practitioners, focusing especially on the U.S. and Global South. Today, we'll hear Jefferson Cowie on his new book, Freedom's Dominion, Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power. We wrap up this week's show with the Radical Songbook Podcast and a 1996 song about striking hospital workers that's still very relevant today. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, take a moment, subscribe, share the show. It's what we call sonic solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. You're listening to the Heartland Labor Forum on 90.1 KKFI, Kansas Community Radio. I'm your host, Christina Disney. On tonight's show, we're going to be talking with Sherman Smith, Editor-in-Chief at the Kansas Reflector, about covering news in a flyover state. Thank you so much for joining us, Sherman. Thank you for having me. On the Kansas Reflector, how do you decide what to cover? You know, sometimes it feels like we're drinking from a fire hose over there because there are so many compelling news stories of public interest. Uh, and so it's really kind of a, a balance of finding what what are the most important stories, the things that are going to affect the most Kansans. Um, but we also put an emphasis on trying to find information that powerful people don't want you to know. I would say from our news coverage perspective, we're not concerned with the talking points that legislative leadership or the, the governor is, is handing out on a particular issue. And so, you know, if somebody says, for instance, this is about school choice, but it's really you look at the bill and you see that 135 million is going to students who are already enrolled in private schools. It's pretty clear that this is not a school choice bill. And so we're not afraid to point that out. So the Heartland Labor Forum, we always like to be 
putting it out there, the goofiest bill awards in either Missouri or Kansas, um, what's happening either in Topeka or Jefferson City. So in your opinion, what Kansas bill would you put as a nominee this year? You know, there's there are a lot of strange bills floating around, but I think the one that maybe is the most outrageous bill I have ever seen in, I think this may be the sixth legislative session that I'm covering, is a a bill that would overhaul the ethics commission and laws governing campaign finance, um, how people run their elections. And it's because uh, the, the ethics commission is investigating serious violations of the law um, uh, that have been alleged toward members of the legislature, uh, Republicans in the legislature, their political action committees, um, are under investigation, and so they want to make all the activity that they're under investigation for completely legal. Um, no more registering political action committees, unlimited campaign donations, allow political action committees and candidates to interact with each other and, and work in harmony. Uh, and then there's even a part of this bill that would open up who could actually serve on the ethics commission so that you could actually put lobbyists and people who are recently in office um, without concern on the ethics commission. It would, it would basically take away the need to have an ethics commission. We see a lot more of that kind of legislation where it may be, as we saw today on this, uh, this bill that deals with homelessness, um, it's actually the model legislation from the Cicero Institute in Texas uh, is just passed by the, the Missouri legislature last year and is already having an impact in Kansas City. It criminalizes homelessness. Uh, and uh, this is one think tank in, in Texas with model legislation, the one and only proponent to come into this committee and say, this is a great idea. But there were 60 people who lined up to say, this is a really bad idea. Uh, and you just wonder why, why are we entertaining this idea? Who, you know, who is driving it? Uh, I asked the the chairman that question, Francis Auerkamp, a Republican from St. Mary's, uh, and he just said, "Well, this is a very important issue." And I said, but, but there are a lot of a lot of groups from states all around the the country who have very important issues that they want to tackle. Why why are we doing this bill? And he just said, "This is a very important issue." Um, so you know, we we don't even know why we're entertaining some of these bills. Uh, even if the only support for them is from somebody several states away. You have been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to heartlandlaborforumkkfi at gmail.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second in my two-part series on the crisis in higher education in the United States. This episode is my interview with Donna Murch and Todd Wolfson about how workers at Rutgers are pursuing an industrial unionism model that brings together all campus workers to challenge the neoliberal university and to fight to transform it into a democratic institution that serves the people. Donna Merch and Todd Wolfson, welcome to The Dig. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. The Rutgers faculty union that you both help lead joined 19 other unions on campus to form the Coalition of Rutgers Union, which represents, I think, roughly 20,000 workers total. How normal is it for unions to work together like this across a university 
do dining hall workers and, and professors typically coordinate labor struggles in this way on campus? I would say no. And I, I mean, what we see in higher ed is in many places, a large percentage of the workers are just not organized. But then where they are organized, they're organized by craft or trade, by the job you do. So tenure track faculty organized tenure track faculty, grad workers organized grad workers, part-time or adjunct faculty organized adjunct faculty, professional staff organized professional staff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because we have been organized and categorized by the work we do, as opposed to all workers on our campuses, it's enabled management to play very smart divide and conquer strategies against us. And importantly, we have played into those strategies. What were the obstacles in selling this kind of coalitional work to those more vulnerable workers who might not have been expecting a faculty union to be standing in solidarity with them, people people like dining hall staff? Well, the first thing that we did was that we changed our media strategy. So we started doing a lot of town halls and really working on promoting them in order to make visible the other job categories. So there's one town hall in particular that I remember that I think was in late March or early April. And I had just moved to Philly from New York. And as I said, the enormous human catastrophe going on in New York, I was devastated. I knew personally three people that had died in mid-March. And because New Jersey is so close to New York and also was one of the city's hardest hit in the very beginning of the pandemic, it was just this kind of whirlwind time of really catastrophe and pain. And so when we did these town halls, we had people from the other job categories talk about what was going on with them, people that had lost their jobs. We also had their children who had lost their tuition benefits come on. And it had a really strong and important effective dimension. That's still one of the most meaningful memories I have is listening to the stories of other people. And this had an amazing transformative effect. I think a couple things influenced it beyond just the 8-9 economic crisis. One was, I think we watched Chicago Teachers Union and we were in awe of their victories, their way of building with the community. And that was really important. And But then the other thing that made our union become more militant and more well-organized was management or the administrations of universities across the country are really bad. They're neoliberal, but ours, it wasn't, is particularly bad. And so, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. We, we organized and got strong because we had a particularly bad boss that pushed us to build more militancy, to be able to build the power to strike back. It might be a very different environment, and maybe Donna and I wouldn't be uh, union organizing now if it wasn't for a very aggressive administration at Rutgers that really pushed us and those who preceded us, like Deepa, to say that this union needs to fight and fight hard. So in the University of Illinois, Chicago, faculty union just went on strike and they came back from a successful five-day strike or so. And one of the core demands they had at the end was more money for mental health counseling for our undergraduate students. Now, the employer will tell you, you have no right to bargain over a student mental health in the contract. But then the teacher will respond at the, at the university level, 
These are my students. I have every right to demand that they are taken care of by this university, and particularly in a moment of great social, political, economic dislocation that was wrought by the pandemic. We need more mental health support. And they actually won that. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We're recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. I refer to everybody as chef because it's a sign of respect. Hey, Chris Garlock here. That was a clip from The Bear, one of my favorite laborific TV shows last year. On today's episode of Labor Goes to the Movies, we check in with actor Harold Phillips for a preview of Sunday's Screen Actors Guild Awards, which recognize and reward the year's best performances in movies and television. The last time we got together to talk about the SAG Award nominees, there were a ton of films and television shows that were focused on these working class issues and we we had a lot to talk about this year um i have to say that trend seems to have reversed pretty dramatically it's not that there aren't shows and movies that are focused on working class issues but a lot of our nominees this year are very much focused on the upper class whether you're talking about um the uh the dropout that's focused on uh elizabeth holmes and her magic blood test that she got convicted of uh of uh using as a scam um whether we're talking about uh the marilyn monroe movie blonde or Elvis, and you've already had somebody on your show to talk about those two movies, the fact that they both started in the working class and kind of shot up into fame. Um, There's a lot, though, Babylon, like I mentioned before, uh, The Fablemans, which arguably could be considered a working class story. It's about a young man who wants to become a film director um his name isn't schmieven schmielberg but it could be (laughs) and uh you know that that that's perhaps not as upper class focused um but then you get into things that just aren't really focused on working people um george and tammy about george jones and tammy wynette inventing Anna about this woman who scammed a bunch of society people and convinced them that she was an heiress, uh, that sort of thing. But with that said, there are definitely some working class shows and movies in this year's crop that I think deserve a little attention. You know, I want to say something really silly, but I'm going to hold off. No, no, go for it. Come on now. You. <laughs> I like the silly. Yeah, we like the no, no, no. Well, I, I, I feel like the Oscars really felt like they took care of business and then Will Smith ruined the whole thing by slapping. <laughs> That's not silly.
And they didn't and they didn't have to feel like we don't have to do anything more for black folks anymore. We've taken care of it. Okay, it's over. We see these stories time and time again, right? Where there's a female led movie that just goes bananas at the at the box office and everybody says oh yeah it's the year of the woman all right now everybody's going to have all these women in in leadership roles and then the next year a couple of movies with female directors or big female casts they don't do quite as well and it immediately goes back to exactly the way it was before you're not seeing people of color you're not seeing women so there is a real pendulum swing that happens there. What are, what are some of the things that you've picked out as laborific or, or about working folks? I think there are some honorable mentions okay. to be made, uh, particularly the Fablements. Now, that's, a, that's an autobiographical film about Steven Spielberg and how he decided to become a director, right? That doesn't seem particularly working class. Mm. But Steven Spielberg did not grow up rich. Steven Spielberg grew up pretty middle class his dad uh helped to build computers for ibm and he lived in arizona when he moved and you don't really see a lot of trappings of the upper class as he's finding his passion and deciding that this is what he wants to do he's a pretty middle class guy um so i think i think that's one that would be a bit of a surprise the other one is a film that we were talking about a little while ago, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Now, that does not seem like a working-class movie. It's got uh, the kung fu moves, and it's all about the multiverse and that sort of thing. But you look at who Michelle Yeoh's character is. She's a woman who owns a laundry, and she's dealing with taxes and this interesting... Um, tax auditor played by jamie lee curtis who is also an amazing performance in that film and of course we have to talk about abbott elementary abbott elementary is uh it's a mockumentary comedy about teachers in an inner i don't know do we say inner city school in philadelphia um it's it's a it's a philadelphia school urban an urban school there we go um and the struggles that they have and finding the comedy in that uh one of the one of the great moments in a couple of the episodes i watched was when the janitor came into the teacher's lounge and uh asked who has a beat up sedan and all the teachers raised their hands yeah yeah so that's that's really it's kind of hard to get more working class the bear Oh, yes. Yeah. And you want to talk about um, an intense half hour. I'm always amazed that it's only a half hour when the show comes to an end. It is packed. Yeah. And it's packed with stuff that anybody who's ever worked in the restaurant industry can relate to. All three of us have. (laughs) I mean, this is a story about uh, a chef who basically goes back to Chicago to run his family's restaurant. And it's this little hole in the wall place that does Italian beef sandwiches. And he's got his own struggles with uh, going small from where he was at, uh, you know, the big restaurants in the world and that sort of thing. 
but the real story is about the interaction of the people who work in the kitchen. And these are people who take the bus for a living at 4.30 in the morning and they're there till 10 at night and they're just working all the time next to each other and dealing with each other and knowing that they have to get the product out. It's uh, it's a very, very intense and also funny. Thank you, Harold. Wonderful chatting. And uh, we'll see you next time. Always a pleasure. I'm series co-host Dave Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Jefferson Cowie, the James G. Stallman Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of Capital Moves, RCA's 70-Year Quest for Cheap Labor, Staying Alive, the 70s and the Last Days of the Working Class, The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics, and most recently, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power published by Basic Books. Hi, Jeff, and welcome to the Working History Podcast. Hi, Dave. It's great to be here. So we have Donald Comer, who is a, uh, is he the son or the uh, uh, nephew? Nephew. Of JW, yeah. yeah, the nephew. And he um, is a textile magnate who runs a series of mills, including one in Eufaula, if that's correct. That's right. You know, it's an interesting case because, uh, you know, paternalism is a question that, that defines many aspects of our field of labor history. And, um, uh, you know, and he bought up, well, his dad, actually, he, his dad gave it all to him, B.B. Uh, Comer, who's the governor. He took this grimy, disgusting, horrible, disease-filled mill, like the worst of, you know, the dark satanic mills. And turn it into kind of a nice place. I really sort of struggled with this question of what did this mean? He, you know, gave everybody nice uniforms and put in bathrooms instead of one outhouse and fresh drinking water and clean air and uh, ran on electricity and instead of coal and, uh, you know, spiffed it all up. And everybody loved Mr. Donald. He, they absolutely loved this guy. He, and he embraced the early New Deal. He embraced the first New Deal uh, uh, and, and was on the textile board and um, uh, during the National Industrial Recovery Act and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, what do you do with that? Here's, here's a person who kind of used his freedom from the federal power in a fairly effective way, a fairly more than benign, a fairly generous way, more generous than he had to be. He was sort of a Christian gospel kind of or, 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 or social gospel, excuse me, figure. But then when the second New Deal comes along, and it's actually about empowering workers, and it's actually about providing unionization rights and collective bargaining and stuff that doesn't necessarily empower him, but empower his workers to say what they want, rather than him telling them what he wants. Uh, he he fights off unionization elsewhere in, Uf in his other plants. In Ufala, they're basically by his side all the way. Yeah, you call this system uh, enlightened paternalism, and this, uh, and that may have been the term they used at the time. I I don't know, but um, you know that has been an issue when, especially studying uh, the textile industry in this time, and you know where some historians are just flat out critics of it and uh, see it as a mere tool for domination, particularly of the poor whites who were sharecroppers and tenant farmers and did move into industry and, and become a working class. And then there's another side of this coin 
where paternalism is seen as a method that workers themselves were able to manipulate and carve out some spaces of, of cooperation, of making their workplace better. But but you offer, I think, a, a, a rather a little twist on both those that I don't think you necessarily deny that was the case, but you you use your theme to reinterpret or explain the way you see how paternalism works. Could could you expand on that a bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what made writing about this and coming up with the argument about this a little more tricky was this was kind of a golden version of paternalism. This wasn't just, yeah. you know, hey, do you want a ham at Christmas uh, kind of thing? This was, you know, they had a summer camp on the coast and they had bands, they had a band and a baseball team and decent pay. And it would be condescending to say anything besides that the workers really like this guy. And I think it's not our job to say otherwise. But what it did do, and I think this is what you're driving at, is it kept the federal government out of regulating industrial work. While Mr. Donald, Donald Comer, used that freedom fairly effectively, or fairly generously, perhaps, the long impact is essentially, and that is the key to Southern history in a lot of ways, is to keep federal government out of their affairs. His very nice example also becomes cover for a whole lot of other really bad behavior um, that allows simultaneously freedom from federal authority allows you to run your plan as you want. Now that could be run well like Donald Comer's plants or run really in bad ways as many, many other places were. Thanks for listening to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Email us at workinghistorypodcast at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at Working History. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome, sisters and brothers, to the Radical Songbook, Liberated Podcast Edition. I'm your host, Michael Funky, and you are tuned in to the Songs of Social Significance for March 2023. You know, there's a long history of radical music fueling social change and progress. Can music change the world? Several years ago, I asked the late, great Pete Seeger that question. I don't know about that, said Pete, but the powers that be certainly think so. They have repressed song for centuries. And indeed, sisters and brothers, there is power in song. We're hospital workers out on strike, struggling to make a decent living, fighting the bosses and the scabs, and we are not about to give in. We're demanding living wages, we gotta get a raise, we gotta get a raise. Our wages are outrageous, we gotta get a raise now. Oh, we're out to rock the get line, and we're ready to keep walking. We are going to be a Till the management sits down to do some talking When they hear us singing solidarity forever Yes, the union makes us strong With our voices proudly raising harmony together Come and sing our union song We shall overcome the opposition of the hospital employers We shall not be moved by their injunctions And their high-priced downtown lawyers our enthusiasm won't diminish We are in the battle till the finish Till the bosses hear what we 
by saying, realize that we're not playing, we'll stay out, stay out in the heat, the heat and the cold, in the wind and the rain and the weather, our union is going to prevail, stick together as we Rebel Voices sang Paul McKenna's all-too-relevant hospital workers out on strike, recorded by them in 1996. Thanks for tuning in, sisters and brothers. What else can I say? Power to the people. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 Labor Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited and produced this week by me and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.